This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for May 27th, 2021, the Gain of Function edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. in my my, uh, special bio lab here in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School is in a biohazard suit in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hi. I just have to say I'm so excited about the title of the GabFest today because I literally said gain a function to myself like 10 times last night in hopes that what it means would stick in my head, which is still unlikely. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes is uh, isolated. He's in an isolation chamber, also fully kitted out with a bubble around his head. (laughs) <laughs> protecting his air supply. Hello, John Dickerson of Face the Nation and 60 Minutes and everything else. I always live in a bubble. On today's GabFest, we will talk about whether the virus that causes COVID originated in a Wuhan China lab. Will we ever know? Does it matter? Then how serious is the Belarus crisis and does it herald a new era of authoritarian brinksmanship? And then we'll talk to David Shore about the crisis of polling and whether polls will ever be useful again and what the crisis of polling means for democratic strategy. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Father's Day is coming up. I found an amazing gift for my dad. It's called the Black Robe. I found it at former Justice Breyer's Etsy shop. He's making really high-end bathrobes. They're super plushy. They're all in black. And he designed them so they look like actual judicial robes. Breyer says he got the idea for it after his retirement when he took a bath, forgot a towel, and one of his old Supreme Court robes was the only thing handy. So he dried himself with that, and he thought there might be a market for them if they were actually plush and absorbent. So he's made them. So get the black robe from Justice Breyer, former Justice Breyer at Etsy. So I have a point to make, which is that if Justice Breyer was going to retire this summer, it would probably be in the beginning of July, which might be a bearable amount of time between now and then. I know. Can you tell I know. To us? I know. If he it's, doesn't retire in July. If he retire, it's got to end. It's gotta I don't end. know what you're going to do. I know. Okay. I think that, Continue I think on. That the, I think the continuation of this is itself an argument for his hasty retirement. Do you guys remember yeah. like that, that, what was the, the Trump podcast that they started? What was it called? Trumpcast. Trumpcast. The Trumpcast was started like as a joke at Slate, and then they ended up having a five-year podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Gabfest listeners, we will find some (laughs) off-ramp if necessary. I don't know what it will be. So I'm neck deep. We're all neck deep in fascinating reading about the origins of the virus, the coronavirus that has caused the global pandemic. There is a massive reassessment going on about whether the virus could have been created by scientists in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, could have come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in some fashion and been released accidentally into the world. There are various ways that might have happened. President Biden this week ordered a 90-day investigation by the intelligence community about whether the virus was lab-created. This theory was poo-pooed when Tom Cotton and other China hawks and even President Trump at some point or President Trump's allies floated it more than a year ago. It was attacked by scientists, attacked by the mainstream media, but very smart people and a bunch more reporting have raised extremely complicated questions about what happened and why we don't know more. So, John, why don't we start about why 
this question is important. Does it matter where this virus came from? Well, I think there are three, at least three reasons it's important, but there are different time periods. There was the why in the original moment that it came up. Why was it important? And that was clouded a little bit by, or a lot of bit, by politics. And it seems to me the operative question is, if you had known where it specifically came from, how would that have improved or not the response? And a part of that is, or one of the central things of that is, was China lying? about where it came from, and therefore, should everybody have been skeptical about what was coming out of China? I think you can make a very strong case that everybody knew China was lying, regardless of where it came from. That all the epidemiologists you talked to and the people who were trying to ring the bell of alarm in early January were saying China's releasing these hospitalization and death reports that are wildly at odds with what we're picking up on Chinese social media. Secondly, anybody who's dealt with China knew they were lying. And then I think it's important to understand why it was important politically, because it was in the interests of President Trump and his defenders to keep everybody focused on the bad Chinese and less focused on the terrible result. Whether this was an accident or deliberate or transmitted from a bat to a human really doesn't matter in terms of the response in the U.S. At present, it's interesting sort of to get back at that China question, and then it's now become a media question, which is, did the media latch onto a consensus? Did the experts latch onto a consensus? And that, I think, has to be split into two things. One is whether this was an accident coming out of a lab or whether it was the result of a bioweapon, which Tom Cotton, who talked about this, was a theory he both played footsie with and denied. But that's quite important because if it's a bioweapon, that changes the kind of stakes in the moment when the country's trying to respond to this in a way I think is important. So David Leinhart, in his morning newsletter for The Times, used the word groupthink for the media coverage about this. And I think, John, it's totally related to what you're saying, that the notion that the Chinese created a bioweapon is so incendiary. And as far as I know, there's zero evidence for that theory. I like have said nothing about this, like paid little attention to it. But I've because it was sort of tinged with that accusation, I think there was a lot of reluctance to even entertain the accident theory for a while, which seems like it's plausible should not have been crossed off the list. And I do think that David's right about the sort of groupthink and the way in which a kind of liberal bias among some journalists made it seem like it was toxic to even talk about the notion that there was an accident in a lab, which like shouldn't have been seen as something that was the same, anything like the same kind of accusation. And thus, since there were some scientists who thought it was plausible, should have been entertained. I also think it's important, though, that it seems like there's more reason to think the accident in the lab theory might be true than it was initially. Is that right, David, when you look at the evidence? Yes. I mean, there's been a lot more reporting. I I would also say that just to linger on the point about the groupthink, the groupthink was certainly caused, I think, by a political response. The fact that it's people like Tom Cotton and the, to a certain extent, President Trump, who are raising this, raising this, you know, the evil, malevolent China piece of it caused liberals, the liberal media to respond, but also the scientific community largely came out with very strong statements saying, oh, no, this is almost certainly natural origin. And one of the things that's come out recently is people saying like these these group statements that were made back in uh, early 2020 about the 
the certainty or the near certainty that it was it was a natural origin. Those statements were made without evidence and without you know the confidence that they expressed. And so there was a. It wasn't simply that the media and liberals were were doing this. It was also a, a scientific move. If in fact this virus has a human origin, the scientists are culpable too for not allowing that possibility. I guess one of the things that's important is is to know, since we're saying that this theory has now gotten more support by increased evidence, it's important to understand then the amount of evidence and whether the theories that were being balanced on it from Tom Cotton and President Trump had any evidentiary support or whether actually they were political arguments that have turned out to have science behind them. In other words, they weren't necessarily evaluating deep amounts of evidence. I think secondarily, there's an analysis. But, of but the, John, they're looking at, I mean, I look, I don't want to defend Tom Cotton and I don't know what was going through his head. And I am certainly no expert on this. But Tom Cotton was not he, he wasn't he was pointing at two very particular pieces of evidence that seemed, you know, fishy at the time. One was that there was already a study early on at the time he's talking that said that many of the cases that were cited as original cases did not have any connection to the Wuhan to the market market, the wet market. Right. So number one. And number two, it is weird that the only institute in China that happens to be studying diseases that are like this disease yes. is located right next to where the outbreak starts and that there are is a historically maybe iffy safety record at this institute. Sure. So that's sure. That seems to me right. like it's not pulled out of his ass. No, no, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry if I left that impression I was that's wrong. It was a hunch but it wasn't. But it's a hunch at the time that has now gotten more data behind it. I think the. Um, but it. But the. I guess what I was just trying to be clear about is that there wasn't a mountain of certain evidence. There was hunches, but at the time, all kinds of U.S. policy was being based on hunches in other kinds of ways. So sufficient to the amount of evidence that was necessary to cause all kinds of behavior, there was probably sufficient evidence of this hunch to do certainly more than just totally dismiss it. Um, on this question of why this is important, though, so groupthink is bad. But the question is why, at the time of all the things that were going on in the country, trying to fix testing, trying to get a handle on this, trying to figure out about asymptomatic transmission, all the things that were important in terms of who this was killing, the question of where it originated in terms of answering those vital emergency questions at the moment was further down on the list. It, there wasn't anything about where it originated except to the extent that you could have, if the Chinese had been straight with us from the beginning, if this is where it originated from, you could have had a more a faster mobilization, perhaps. But by the time this was being ignored in Tom Cotton, the, the horse was out of the barn. So I think that's part of, it was groupthink on something that at the moment was not an essential matter. Groupthink is bad, no doubt, but I'm just trying to I think correctly align where this was in the public conversation and why people were kind of obsessed with other things that were vital because it was leading to life and death decisions. So what's the evidence that has more recently accumulated that makes the lab leak theory more plausible? And are we ever going to find out or is it like too late? Right. And again, we should know none of us is scientists and I really? Think I think in, that people listen to the show are confused you are about a, that. You're a scientist of law. Me in particular. I th there is a lot of evidence, some circumstantial uh, about... Let, let's run through some of it. And it's come out through journals like Nicholas Wade, Donald McNeil, then various other scientific Nicholson reports. Nicholson Baker. Give him a little credit. Nicholson His Baker. piece was first in New York Magazine. So 
first of all, is an absence of evidence, which is that historically with viruses like this, you can go once they emerge in humans, you can go back and sort of discover where they came from and how they move from. In this case, it would have been a bat. It's a strong belief that it began as a bat virus through another animal into humans. And with SARS and MERS, they were able to go back and figure out, oh, here's the course of transmission. With the viruses causing COVID, they are, have been unable to find a chain of transmission that shows where it went through animals and how it developed and evolved and came through these animals into us. And so the And is that because is, the Chinese like shut down that wet market and just like blasted the whole thing with hoses and like so all the animals and the people who would be that chain dispersed? Maybe. It might be that. It may also be like that the, you know, they, but there was also testing of 80,000 animals in China apparently and they haven't been able to find it through that. I don't think the fact that it wasn't at the wet market means that that ended the possibility of research. You would, you would test lots of other kinds of animals around and see, do we see any indications in the, in the blood and the antibodies of these animals that this something like this is circulating? And they haven't found anything. Can I just say to be clear that the reason they um, shut down that wet market and then cleaned it so quickly was the mayor of Wuhan was trying to cover it up, not hire up Chinese authorities. Then there's the fact, this coincidence of this Wuhan Institute of Virology is right there. And there is now seems to be evidence that there were scientists or p employees of that institute who were mysteriously sick with possibly a disease that was like COVID-19 in November 2019, well before it, the disease is circulating in Wuhan proper. There's the fact that this institute was studying very similar viruses and doing what's called gain-of-function research. And gain-of-function research is the most interesting like dog in this, in this uh, dog park which is this idea that you would take in order to understand how these viruses jump and become dangerous to humans. You actually try to take viruses that appear in bats and other animals that have the capacity, coronaviruses that have the capacity to become dangerous to us and try to make them dangerous to understand like what would make them dangerous. This is a research where you insert genes, you insert genes that have capacity that make these, that these viruses give them a better ability to grab onto human cells and you insert these genes into viruses that don't have the capacity and see what they, what happens. And there's a theory that this may be how it, it jumped, that this is a virus that was created in a Wuhan lab and an attempt to understand how these viruses work and that that virus got out of control. There's a huge amount of evidence that viruses that are being studied in controlled circumstances escape all the time. Smallpox escaped repeatedly. The H1N1, the, the flu that has beset us for many decades, may have in itself been an accidental escape from a Russian lab in the 70s. There's a lot of evidence of very lax biosecurity in the Wuhan lab. It's, it, was, it was labeled as a level four lab, but actually apparently the way they were, they were doing work on bat viruses at, at level two, which, which certain people in the, who, who do study of bat viruses are like, that is totally dangerous those viruses are you know it, level two is not is not strict enough certainly it can escape that there's a there's a particular quality that the virus has that our virus has which allows it to cut it's a, it's sort of a it's a it's cutting tool and that cutting tool the way it exists the rna in it and the dna that uh, it's connected to it is very distinctive and is not found in any other virus but is found in things that humans play with and humans use and these virology tools. There's a huge cover-up that China has done, which is like it has not allowed evidence about what, you know, the health of the people at the Institute of Virology. It has not allowed 
real study about what is going on at that Institute of Virology out. So there's a lot of kind of circumstantial evidence that's floating around. None of it is is a smoking gun, but it's very fishy. And is it too late to figure it out in light of everything you just said? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, Joe I Biden doesn't some, think so. When I, John I mean, Dickerson? it depends on whether, um, you know, this requires the cooperation of the Chinese, which is not... Um, which is which we shouldn't depend on, which is also one of the weird things about going back to the original part of this, um, which is how credulous the U.S. officials were about what China was telling them, given that there's no reason to ever be credulous, particularly on something like this. And so that's a, just a weird part of the initial response to this. But people who do genome sequencing um, that I've talked to about this is they say that if you go, you can when you take the virus out of people's noses. You can trace back its permutations from each individual virus that you you find. And one of the people studying this that I talked to said that you can trace it back to patient zero and patient zero doesn't support the Institute of Virology theory, that it starts later. So in other words, wouldn't accommodate those workers in the lab who got sick. Now, there's pro- this is where, you know, I'm so far out of my depth. There is potentially an easy explanation for that. I think you can use genome sequencing to walk the cat back to its origin in a way that doesn't rely necessarily on, you know, the good faith of the, of the Chinese government. Um, and so, I, and I would throw just one thing, this gain-of-function research, this is why it's really important now, as opposed to back when we were all in the middle of a raging pandemic fire, is that the U.S. government that has supported gain-of-function research that's an issue. Should gain-of-function research be existing on the planet, and should the U.S. government be supporting it if it's going to lead to these kinds of bad outcomes? That's an open question. And I guess also it's a question of if if the U.S. government was at all encouraging gain-of-function research, were somehow tax dollars going indirectly to support the kind of thinking that led to to this. I mean, that's the most sort of conspiratorial way of thinking about it. I'm interested maybe in closing, just thinking about the questions about racism. There, there are some people who say that saying this is a, of human origin is anti-Chinese and smacks of a kind of racism or prejudice that is not good. It's bad and should be discouraged. I actually think there's a, there was a kind of racism in the wet market theory that was really very strong. Like the wet market theory to me always felt like extremely racist, like that there was this notion of, oh, these, these Chinese primitives and their, their live animals and their, you know, pangolins that they're keeping for their what, who knows what food rituals. And that always, to me, actually had a really ugly tinge to it. Is this ugly, Emily, or is this just like, you know, we just have to talk about it pretty directly and, and not color it with a sense like, oh, this is represents some larger form of bias. I mean, I think we have to talk about it directly and we have to talk about it in a way that doesn't flirt with the kind of like exoticism you were just talking about, right? Like we can't ignore this question. <laughs> it's important for preventing future pandemics and for understanding what happened. And so if there is a plausible theory, we have to be able to face it and discuss it and not walk away from it. On the other hand, it's important not to make it sound like there is some big Chinese conspiracy if none exists. And so I think there's just like a sort of calm, reflective way of talking about these questions. I don't 
think it's like that out of reach. I mean, John, a few minutes ago was saying it's important not to be credulous in this kind of situation. And I don't think you were talking about China in particular. I think you were talking about any country that had this kind of, right? Like, you're not sure whether the authorities are giving you an accurate explanation. Well, and we certainly saw authorities in the United States of America, our beloved country, including the most powerful person in the U.S. government, lie repeatedly in a way that endangered people's health for months and in ways that led to bad U.S. policy. So yes. um, you're exactly right about that. Now, the Chinese are our you know largest and most important strategic global competitors. So there are all kinds of other reasons that they would lie in addition to the reasons that you know, all other smaller countries would want to lie. Right. My point is just that there are nationalist motivations for lots of different ways of handling this. And the world deserves an explanation. They deserve as thorough and unbiased an investigation as possible. And in the meantime, it's important not to be like casting aspersions or talking about this in a way that does add to anti-Asian prejudice, right? I mean, we've had this terrible burst of violence against um, Asian Americans in this country. We've talked about it on the show. Obviously, there has to be a way to talk about this. And it is also should be equally obvious that as much as possible, it should be conducted in a way that doesn't give rise to people's ugly stereotypes. Well, one thing I would just add to that is remember that President Trump used the anti-Asian when he kept talking about his different things. He called it the China flu, on and on and on, was a a rallying effort to appeal to emotion, to get people to rally around their anti-China feelings. Right. I mean, he did it totally wrong. He was completely credulous about the explanation from the Chinese government, and yet he whipped up all this anti-Asian sentiment. So let's not do that. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The government of Belarus forced down a Ryanair flight from Greece to Lithuania using a fake bomb threat and a fighter escort to harry the plane into Minsk, whereupon Belarus police hauled out Roman Protasevich and his girlfriend. Protasevich had been living in exile in Lithuania. He was a Belarusian who had been helping to lead a journalistic activist group that exposed state violence and exposed some of the things the government of Belarus did, and in particular, dictator Alexander Lukashenko did to steal a presidential election last year. 
So he, Protasevich is now in Belarus custody. Apparently, according to people who know these things, he's been beaten, is certainly under duress. He's likely to be harshly treated. Emily, why why did Lukashenko feel he could get away with this? I mean, forcing down an airliner is something very different than anything we've seen before. I mean, it's so scary, this whole story, this poor guy who is stuck, but also, I mean, Lukashenko is this dictator in the heart of Europe, and maybe the sort of very boldness of this tactic was what attracted him to it. Like, he got a ton of attention. He makes it seem, as Ann Applebaum was pointing out in The Atlantic, like, you're not safe no matter where you are. He can reach anywhere. And there's this kind of sheer audacity of bringing down a commercial airliner from Ireland because it just crossed like a corner of Belarusian airspace. The scary thing about it is that it's hard to imagine there being enough repercussions for Belarus that this will not perhaps seem to have been worthwhile to Lukashenko, partly because he has the support of of Putin. But also one worries about this becoming a tactic. Like, is this going to be something that other authoritarian leaders and other governments participate in? And are we in this moment of, you know, like transnational efforts to kidnap or assassinate dissidents and other people viewed as hostile all over the world? I mean, the technology is allowing for that more and more. And that is scary. Well, I mean, we're clearly in that moment. We have the Saudi assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. You have the Russian assassinations of various people and attempted assassinations, including the poisoning of the leading opposition figure on an airplane. Sort of similar combination, airplane plus poisoning. And the United States has participated in this too, right? Yeah, renditioning people and kidnapping people. I do think that this air travel thing I mean, I, if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll be really sad, but I don't think this can stand. I, don't, I think the, the global elite of this world is accustomed to being able to travel safely on airlines that cross borders and not to have to think about it. And people do not want to have to think about it. It is very different. Like, you know, you're a, a Saudi dissident gets chopped up at the embassy near you is very different than the plane you're on is forced down with a fake bomb threat by a brutal dictator. That is... People will will tolerate stuff happening to other people, even if they think it's wrong. They were not going to tolerate it if they think it's going to happen to them. And I, I think Lukashenko, this may have been overstep. Like I don't think Europe is going to allow this country to play nice. It's not. He's going to have to be totally dependent on Russia because I don't. I don't think that the world community can say, yeah, you can go ahead and do this and more or less get away with it. I feel like the the world is going to punish this. We've already seen it's been Belarus is effectively its air connection to the world has been cut. So that's my hope. Yeah, but this dissident remains in prison in like stark conditions along with his girlfriend. And your point, David, is that it's it's not that people will be morally outraged, though morally outraged they may be. There are, yeah, we're always morally outraged. Yeah, but right, but it's that the global plane flying order relies on norms and being able to believe yeah. that you can trust air traffic yeah. controllers and all those other things that he's broken. Yeah, I mean there was there was there was a, there was a similar thing. I mean it's not exactly the same, but in the '60s and '70s, airplanes get hijacked all the time. Or yeah friend Brendan Kerner wrote a book about this all the time. And the world was like, no, that at some, at some point everyone was like, this can't, no, no more of this. And it just stopped cold because tourists want to travel and business people want to know they can 
go and do their business. And I just don't think that an interruption to air travel is is something that people are going to accept in the way that they will accept people being poisoned down the block from them. So then the question is, what reasserts the norm? So if, we, if you feel like if Anne Applebaum's right, and this is a, a weakening of that global norm about being able to fly places without your plane being hijacked by a country, simply a prisoner release may not, that doesn't probably do it. It means basically you can do this, send the signal to dissonance in your country, and then, you know, like release them a little bit later, but you've sent the message. So the question is, what what reasserts that norm? And then the question to me about U.S. policy is, okay, if Russia has the power it people claim over uh, Belarus, is it something the U.S., which has a lot to ask and fuss with Russia about, is it something that that the U.S. wants to make a big deal about, given all the other things on the plate? Alternatively, if Russia has interests and ways it wants to please the U.S., because basically it wants to please the U.S., on matters A and B so that it continue can continue to bum out the U.S. on matters, you know, D through Z. Is this something where Putin sees an advantage in somehow pressuring Lukashenko, saying it, delivering him to his meeting, not delivering him personally, but of course, delivering something to the meeting with Biden that he's got scheduled in the next few months? Um, and I don't know which of the two ways that goes. Dear listeners, if you are a Slate Plus listener, Slate Plus member, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. We do an extra segment every week for Slate Plus members. You also get other benefits, zero ads on any Slate podcast. You get bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn. And uh, it's only a dollar for your first month of membership. So consider becoming a member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And this week, we have super useful Slate Plus topic that you would get to listen to, which is about how to end a conversation, when to end a conversation. Should you be ending conversations a lot sooner than you're ending them? We will maybe end the Slate Plus topic very abruptly. Who knows? We'll see. Slate.com slash Plus. Now we're joined by David Shore, who's the head of data science with Open Labs and a Democratic polling icon, though he's awfully young to be an icon. I'm sure that David Shore wouldn't say this. He may not even agree with this, but I would say that if the confident 538ism of 2008 and 2012 defined polling in the Obama era, David Shore's more troubled, skeptical take on polls and what they mean in particular for the strategy of the Democratic Party and Democratic politics define where we are in 2021. So he's joining us to talk about the state of polling and the fundamental problem about why polls are so bad. And we should note up front that Emily Sun Simon is actually working for Open Labs, by the way. I'll start. Uh, David, the polling error in 2020 was monumental. And the fundamental reason you say, you've said, is that people who answer polls are weird and not at all like the electorate as a whole. Can you explain what that means and address whether it's a fixable problem? Yeah, that's, that's great. And also, thank you for the generous introduction. I think when you talk about polls, first, you know, I want to introduce a statistical concept of uh, survey non-response bias. You know, whenever people talk about why polls are wrong, pollsters like to say things like, oh, you know, the, the electorate changed. We couldn't predict the surge in turnout. Undecideds broke against us. It was early voting or shy Trump voters. And actually, none of these things 
usually matter very much when it comes to polling error. Polling error usually has one cause, which is survey non-response bias. doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It's a fancy way of saying that survey takers are really weird. You know, sur- surveys fundamentally come from this assumption. It's called an exchangeability assumption for the math people who are listening, that people who answer surveys, once you control for the things that you wait on, are the same. Uh, they're exchangeable with people who don't answer surveys. Um, and that's, you know, uh, usually not true. And it's just a matter of degree of how untrue it is. You know, in 2016, the polls were off. The national polls were basically fine. But state by state, you know, Donald Trump won and everybody was very surprised by that. And the reason people were surprised was that there was this state error pattern where Democrats did better than expected on the coasts or in the Sun Belt in places like Georgia. And they did much worse than the polling suggested in places like Wisconsin or places like Minnesota or Ohio. And you know, we spent a lot of time you know, digging into, into why this happened. These were very large polling misses. And it really came down to this concept of social trust. You know, and that's operationalized. Uh, you know, the GSS, it's this big government survey that they run every two years. They get an 80% response rate because they pay people 100 bucks to take it. And basically you ask, do you think that people can generally be trusted or do you think that people should keep to themselves? And it turns out that about 65% of people <laughs> say that people generally can't be trusted. And that's not trust in government. That's just trust in the people around them. That number has increased by 20% since the 1970s, which is concerning, but it's relevant from a measurement perspective because it turns out that unsurprisingly, people who trust the people around them uh, are a lot more likely to answer phone surveys if you just like mechanically think about what's going on. This has always been true, but it used to not matter very much because it used to be that politics wasn't about how much you trusted the people around you. But Donald Trump changed what it meant to be a Democrat or what it meant to be a Republican. He changed these coalitions in a way that was correlated with who was answering surveys. And so if you go and you actually look, people who trust their neighbors swung toward us I say us, but swung toward Democrats uh, by about 6%. And the silent majority of people, grumpy people who don't trust institutions, uh, swung against us. But they weren't, they just literally weren't in any of our surveys. And, you know, when it comes to messaging, you know, when the Clinton campaign was doing all of these messaging polls to figure out, you know, should I go hard on cosmopolitan issues and attack, you know, attack Donald Trump? Or should I have an econ focus? All of the people who would have preferred an economic focus just literally weren't in the polls. You know, that's that's the first story, you know, for why uh, why polls were wrong in 2016. And also in 2018, there was the same error pattern. People didn't notice because, you know, Democrats won in 2018. But state by state, you know, a lot of states in the Midwest were much closer than expected. Then we get to 2020, where in 2020, there was this error pattern by state. You know, Wisconsin, the polls said we would win by 17 points. We won by 0.3%. Unlike the other two cycles, the national polls were wrong, uh, you know, basically by about 3%. It's actually one of, I think, the largest polling error in decades. We still had this old polling phenomena of social trust. But then the other thing was coronavirus. When coronavirus started, Democrats stayed at home, respected the lockdown, and uh, Republicans didn't. And suddenly a bunch of liberals started taking surveys and there was really nothing anyone could do. To, uh, you know, there was all these liberals stuck inside, angry at Donald Trump, desperate to take political surveys. And that's actually, you know, why it happened. There's a lot of you know, evidence for that. Given the, your understanding of polls and where it is right now and the things that make it difficult to poll, when you hear people in business like me talk about polling and not just our poll, but any number of polling, any different kinds of polls. Do you think that basically 
it's total nonsense in that in that we I mean, we've always made a mistake in the political game of of leaning too heavily on polls and what they mean and thinking they have this like scientific precision. But in addition to the errors in polling, do we misunderstand how people think? And um, for example, there are lots of polls that are put forward on issue positions where people say, I believe X. But really, issue positions are just um, different ways of asking them partisan questions. And that their belief in X changes the minute after the election happens because X gets associated from being associated with a Republican to being associated with a, a Democrat. And it's, it's that change that changes their mind, not some understanding of the underlying issue. So I guess it's a two-part question. The one is, do you think basically most polls are, are highly useless? And then secondly, is, are there additional factors, including polarization or other things, that undermine how we undermine polling in general? Well, you know, I want to jump to the second half of your question um, on issues, because I, th I think that there's a really interesting duality here that, um, you know, a lot of people don't understand. You know, political science for a long time has said, you know, most voters are not issue voters. You know, most voters, you know, vote for who they vote for on the basis of, you know, demographics or who they trust their values. But people in the center, or, uh, you know, I don't want to say the center because they have people, swing voters have a wide variety of, uh, of views, but swing voters, you know, take, pick candidates, you know, based on issues to a, to a degree to which I think people don't understand, while hard partisans pick their issues, you know, based on, based on the party as, as opposed to the other way around. You know, one example and, you know, one crosstab I like to talk about a lot is in 2016, you know, I think a lot of popular observers of the election would would say, oh, it's about Donald Trump. It's about he was uh, he was on The Apprentice. You know, he he they create all this psychodrama. But if you actually look at issues support, if you cross tab people who agree with Democrats on immigration, people who agree with Democrats on universal health care, you know, the group that's, you know, anti immigrant, for lack of a better word, but pro health care, Obama got 60 percent of those people and Hillary Clinton got 40 percent of those people. Uh, and that's the story of the election. I think that this fundamentally was about issue positioning, that the 2012 election was a lot, was about health care. And so people voted based on their views on health care. And then in 2016, people talked a lot about immigration on both sides. And so then people voted more in lines with their views on immigration. So I think it matters. And I also think that that makes it really important to figure out what's popular and what's not. And also issue turf. So in other words, if you control, if you keep the conversation on the issue, that helps you in that combination of immigration versus health care. Just keeping it on immigration is half the battle. If you're a Republican. That, no, that's right. You know, I, I like to talk about trust uh, in a different context, which is, you know, Gallup has this great polling. Uh, they did it in 2017 where they go and they ask, you know, what party do you trust more on health care or immigration? And, you know, polling like this has been done basically in every industrialized country in the world. And there's a clear pattern which is people trust Democrats on health care, on education, helping the middle class, but they trust Republicans on, you know, things like national security, crime, immigration, taxes. And so a lot of the battle in politics is to keep the media and to keep the national conversation on the pieces that people agree with us on and trust us on and keep it away from the pieces that they don't trust us on. I say us because I'm a Democrat. So then if you take this premise that um, if you're a Democrat, you want to talk about issues that are popular among Democrats. How do you do that without leaving 
some groups out in the cold, like small groups like trans people or marginalized groups like poor people. I mean, immigration is an example. There's obviously an important force of advocates and voters on the left in the Democratic Party who care a lot about, you know, making sure that they're the DACA folks don't have to leave the country, etc. So there's some tension there, right? And I wonder how you think about that, because I know that you yourself have pretty lefty politics, but you're also a pragmatist. So how do you balance those those values? The reality of our political system is that, you know, there are large structural biases. You know, people don't like to hear it. But Joe Biden got 52.3% of the two-party vote. And if he got 52%, then Donald Trump would be president and there would be a Republican Senate right now. And so that means that it's even even though it's very unfair, we have less leeway to disobey the median voter or stray and do unpopular things than the other side does. And pretending that that fact isn't there just hands over power to the other side. Uh, and I think that that creates some hard trade-offs. You know, that doesn't mean that we have to do we have to throw everyone under the bus. I, I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of capacity. And I also think that. A lot of the things that people think are unpopular are not as unpopular as they as one might think. You know, uh, all the polling I've seen of DACA suggests that it's popular. You know, even if a path to citizenship, you know, might might, might not be as popular as people think. Trans rights um, are a lot more popular than people think. We have a Democratic governor in North Carolina right now, specifically because uh, Republicans tried to push anti-trans legislation. And police reform is literally the most popular non-economic issue that we pulled in the last year. So I, I think that if you decide to hem and cater to the views of the median voter, you know, the outcomes are not nearly as retrograde as I think a lot of people might be afraid of. David, going back to the point you were making earlier, just about the errors in polling, isn't there a solution, which you've just pointed out, for the polling in 2024 and 2022? Why don't we just pay people? Well, uh, I used to pay people a lot, $100, $100 a person. You know, when it comes to polling, I think the real answer is just realizing that polling has gotten harder, the world has gotten crazier, but elections have actually gotten way more predictable. You know, the reality is the country is pretty evenly split. Basically, the Democratic candidate usually gets about 52%, and there's basically no more ticket splitting up and down the ballot. So that's the only, you know, you almost don't need to look at polls as much as you used to um, in order to guess what happened, what will happen. I want to ask you about bigness, which is uh, the Biden budget's being released today when we tape Thursday. I think it's at six trillion. We have heard and there is no fear at the White House in talking about the bigness of. In fact, they kind of go on a little more about it than than you like you get the point. And they keep talking about how big and bold he is. Is there a polling benefit to that in terms of a populist message, which is that you may not know what he's proposing but as a voter, you hear that it is big in this general issue area and that that has a, a polling benefit. Or would you say that that has a polling benefit that's most important above all in terms of conveying commitment to these set of issues? You know, I, I think the, the big thing uh, is to think about the media, that when you, it's very hard to get the media to cover economic issues. Chuck Schumer can go and talk about the gas tax all day and no one will cover him. But, you know, by proposing these big giant plans, he can actually get the media to talk about what it is that he wants to, as opposed to the border or critical race theory or whatever it is that the Republicans want the media to talk about. After the election, there was this interesting exchange between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Connor Lamb, both Democratic members of the House of Representatives, about the way in which I think mostly 
messaging about the police might have affected the election. And you were saying that police reform is really popular. That, I think, is different from the message about defunding the police, which my sense is not popular. And Connor Lamb was arguing, and I think some other moderate Democrats in the House have said, when Democrats on the left wing of the party really elevate those issues, that hurts us. Is that what you mean about messaging and popular issues? And and if that's right, then what are these folks on the left who've been elected supposed to do? They're, it's hard for me to imagine AOC tamping herself down for the sake of Connor Lamb's district, right? That just seems, there seems like a, a strange fit between the nationalization of politics, which I, I see all the time, and the way in which people are going to want to have different messages and different ideas they're putting forth within the Democratic coalition. Yeah, I, I think that the reality of polarization is that everyone in the party and everyone in the greater party, you know, it includes liberal journalists, it includes activists, share a brand, um, you know, whether we like it or not. But I, I do think that, you know, if you look at AOC's policies, if you look at the policies that AOC supports and Joe Biden doesn't, a lot of them are unpopular. You know, like police reform is a 60 percent issue, but defunding the police is a 40 percent issue. And it's just true that if liberals go out and advocate for defunding the police, it will hurt Democrats nationally and make us being in a position to pass legislation be less likely. But a lot of AOC's positions are super popular. Uh, wealth taxes pull really well. The Loan Shark Prevention Act, which caps credit card interest rates at 15% and would materially benefit a lot of people, um, is one of the most pop. I think it's the single most popular economic policy we've ever pulled. Uh, and so I think, you know, what I would say is that given that we're all in this together and you could imagine a world where that's not the case. You can imagine a world where uh, where, you know, we're in the 90s and there is a clear distance between the le most left wing person in the House and Bill Clinton and the left has much less influence. But now that I think the left and all these issue advocacy groups have so much more power that comes with like a real responsibility. And I think a natural compromise is it, it'd be really productive to focus on the things that are popular. Um, because even among, even there's, if we did every single popular thing in this country, uh, it would be transformative and help millions of people and turn us into like a much more left wing place. And I think that that's a very reasonable goal. Um, and, uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, try to jeopardize that and be too greedy. David, in light of that, what is the importance of structural reform, increasing the size of the Senate, preventing gerrymandering, voting rights, these steps the Democrats could take while they're in power to try to make it so that when they win 52 percent of the vote, they actually control the government? Um, are those popular, unpopular? Should the Democrats do them no matter what, because there's this very tiny window in which they are in power, which otherwise will end forever? Yeah, I'm I'm not going to lie and pretend that West Virginians are clamoring for Puerto Rican statehood. Um, but I will say that, one, all of these things are above water, you know, uh, and, and they're, they're all, you know, reasonably popular, even if they're not the most popular Democratic priorities in the world. But I would make a different point, which is that the media media attention is a really fixed quantity. And if we pass this legislation and Republicans decide that they want to attack us on democracy reform, voters don't care very much about democracy reform. And time that they spend attacking us on democracy reform is time that they won't spend attacking us on immigration or, or crime. Uh, and so I'm pretty convinced just from an electoral perspective that one, these are reasonably popular things. Two, it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, majority rule, one person, one vote. These are all very important concepts. 
three, I think it's it's actually just good for the Democratic Party. People shouldn't be afraid to do it. And it, it will really materially increase our chance of elections that we win. Right now, I think in the absence of legislation, we can be expected to hold the Senate maybe 5% of the time over the next 10 years. And I think with democracy reform, we can bring that up to 30. That makes a really big difference that will impact a lot of people's lives. David Shore is the head of data science with Open Labs. David, thank you so much for joining us. Come back anytime. Thank you so much, David. I'm not the best legal mind, but you might be the best polling mind. Uh, that's, that's, very, that's very sweet. Thank you. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you and your polling-minded son are sitting on a porch discussing things, what will you be chattering, Tim, about? Will you be chattering about polls or not? When he is drinking orange juice because he is 18 years old. I am super interested in a story out of Chicago this week. It's on the website of WBEZ. The headline is Mayor Lori Lightfoot blamed gun violence on judges, but emails show her staff knew it wasn't true. And the story is about a hack of the mayor's office. Hacks of uh, government or corporate institutions are bad. And yet, this was a pretty illuminating hack. It showed that while the mayor and leaders of the police were blaming releasing misdemeanor defendants or not making them stay in jail before trial, these leaders were blaming the spike in gun violence in Chicago on on those releases. And it turned out that they knew internally that this wasn't true. So the deputy mayor for public safety at the time was saying, very few folks who bond out of jail actually commit violent offenses with a gun. That fact is not super surprising because we're talking about two different kinds of people, people who commit low-level offenses versus people who commit gun violence. But it seems that for about a year after it was clear that the evidence didn't match this blame game, it continued in Chicago, um, especially among police officials. And it's just a really interesting data point in the whole discussion that I think we're going to be increasingly having about the increase in gun violence in cities across the United States and what's to blame for it. John, what is your chatter? Uh, well, my chatter, chatter is um, uh, something relates to what we were talking about in terms of polling and trust, which is a piece in the Harvard Business Review on how working from home is corroding our trust in each other. And I should mention, by the way, the article is written by Mark Mortensen and Heidi Gardner. It's basically we're going to live in these hybrid worlds where we're working from home, working in place, or that basically... Everybody at the beginning was in a kind of, hey, we're all doing this together, and isn't this great? We're working it out. And now, basically, a lot of workers are saying, is my colleague really going to be working from home? And what measures do you have in place that are going to make sure that they're doing the work from home? So I found that really interesting. And speaking of working, um, by the time you hear this, it will probably have been written or announced that I am, now that the 60 Minutes season is uh, completed. I am um, going to work uh, for Sunday morning and develop a show for Paramount Plus, which will all be um, named later. I mean, the show for Paramount Plus, that is. So uh, that's a little uh, local news. Everything else in my life is all the same. The Gab Fest reporting on politics for CBS and all of that stuff is all still the same. Mazel that sounds exciting. I want to say, John, CBS Sunday morning, I think, is one of the greatest institutions and television is such a great show and i'm so glad you're gonna be on it because it's it's a perfect show and you'll make it even perfecter no i'm thrilled and they've i've done a lot of work with them over the years and more recently in the last year and uh and they're just a delight to work with um and i should say so so were my colleagues at 60 minutes but i'm um yeah no i'm excited my chatter is it's extremely 2010 of me is my chatter is what i've decided 
So if you have an iPhone, there is a widget, a photo widget on your iPhone. If you haven't discovered it, it's on your today screen or it could be put on your home screen and it will display what's called featured photos. It goes into your photo library and every day it refreshes and randomly picks a bunch of photos. You can just wake up and you look and see, oh, like what, what is there today? And it's photos from 2015, photos from 2017. And it's my favorite minute. It's a way of traveling back in time every morning by just opening the phone and just being delivered a selection that the universe or the Apple algorithm has decided of the 5,000 photos on, on my phone that I've taken over the years. And it's great. I don't know if you guys look at that. I do. Mine pops up automatically. I don't even really remember enabling it in any way. And it only picks nice pictures. I really appreciate that. It's never like the smudged photo of my foot that I took by mistake. You're so right. Technology makes us feel like everything is blurring by and this huge, fast thing. But this is a wonderful way in which the technology delivers respite and reflection. And you're so right. I travel back to these moments and... Because a lot of times you take pictures quickly and move on, when you reflect on them later, oh, it's just great. So you're totally right. I totally agree with you. It has the same function in my day. Listeners, you keep sending us wonderful, wonderful chatters. Uh, you tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest. Thank you so much. And our chatter this week comes from Jen Overbeck. And it's so good that we're actually going to turn it into our Slate Plus segment, too. Let's hear from Jen. Hi, Gabfest. I'm Jen Overbeck from Melbourne, Australia, and my cocktail chatter is very meta. The New York Times Science Times this week published So You Want to End the Conversation? It describes a social psychology paper led by Adam Mastroianni, which looked at conversations between friends, family, and strangers and found that conversations rarely end where both parties want them to. Sometimes we want things to keep going longer, but often one or both people just really wants that conversation to end already. But we can't say that to each other, of course. And the researchers found that we're also pretty bad at guessing how the other person feels about when the conversation should end, which only causes more trouble. So the way I imagine this going is this. Hey, I read about the most interesting study. It said that I'm ready to stop talking to you. And you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, here we go. Why is this person still talking? Both of us probably want out of this conversation. But you know what? We'll never know because it's too awkward to tell each other. So let me describe this paper to you for the next half hour. Love. <laughs> All right. We'll try to top Jen in Slate Plus. That is our show for today. The Gab Fest is produced this week by Margaret Kelly. Jocelyn Frank is on vacation. Margaret, thank you so much. You, thank you, Margaret. You captured the calm reassuring competence that jocelyn brings every week and you have that same quality so and nobody else here does so Gracias. we particularly appreciate yeah. it <laughs> our researcher is bridget dunlap gabriel also Roth is, calm and competent actually yes that is also extremely true we're we are neither calm nor competent <laughs> the three of us that's the problem gabriel roth is editorial director of slate audio june thomas is managing producer alicia montgomery is executive producer of slate podcast please follow us on twitter at at slate Gabfest and tweet your chatter to us there for emily bazelon and john dickerson i'm david plotz thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? As you just heard in Cocktail Chatter, we're going to talk about the New York Times did a story about this social psychology experiment by Adam Mastriani and colleagues Daniel Gilbert, Gus Cooney, and Timothy Wilson. They published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences 
do conversations end when people want them to? So Adam talked to the Times reporter. Um, and basically, the, there were a few notes, um, some of which our cocktail chatter correspondent got to, but only 2% of conversations do both parties of the conversation think it ended at the right time. Almost everyone wants a conversation to end sooner than it does, but also points that we tend to have better conversations with strangers because we put on our best self when we talk to strangers, that we're, we're more delightful when we talk to strangers than when we talk to the same people we always talk to. And that the happier people seem to be the people who left wanting more, like ending a conversation sooner, leaving something sooner made people feel happier because they sort of were like, oh, that was good cheesecake. And uh, I still have room to have another bite of it if I wanted. What did you guys make of this? I think I'm a terrible bore. And also, I have a lot of trouble ending conversations and feel like I am the person in my family and with some of my friends, totally including you, David, where I want to keep talking and the other person is done. And I... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.